This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobetsky, suggested we watch the movie Multiplicity. I mean, why have one Michael Keaton when you can have four? But we decided to go with the 2014 Best Picture Oscar winner, Birdman, instead. Welcome to Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace, and I'm your first co-host. And I'm Jessica Clare, your second co-host. Jessica, so for today's movie, I don't usually do this, but I was going online and looking at some of the user reviews <laughs> on IMDb and especially Amazon, because when I went to rent this, I noticed the user score was a little bit lower than I would expect. I was a little surprised too. Isn't it like two and a half? Yeah, it was like two and a half yeah. for a best picture award winning, winner. Yeah. yeah, award winner. Yeah. Um, so let me read some of the reviews on IMDb. One star, left, I left feeling that I had wasted two hours of my life. <laughs> One star, a bunch of very good actors, all wasted an ind- indulgent, pretentious script. Ten stars, I have to say that I'm shocked and how many bad reviews I have seen on this site for this movie. Two stars, ha, where to start? <laughs> One star, yes, I know, it's arty farty, and if you don't appreciate the ridiculously long takes, then you're a Philistine. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's like the first five reviews, and only one of them gave it higher than two stars, which gave it a 10 star. So it's a very polarizing movie. Uh, clearly. Uh, this week, we're watching Birdman or the Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. I think that's kind of where the pretension kind of starts for some people. And the person who had never seen this movie before is our good friend, Doug Gobeski. Welcome to the show, Doug. Good to be here, Charlie. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the drive from Milwaukee over here and then going to be driving home right afterward. You're making me feel kind of <laughs> kind of like, oh, geez, what have I gotten myself into here? <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So uh, like you said, Charlie, this movie came out in 2014, and it basically tells the story of uh, Regan Thompson who's a washed up film actor who's famous for playing a superhero. But I think, you know, it was kind of a a film franchise that I get the impression is somewhere around 20 years ago. And so in this like effort to feel like he has a legacy or to feel like he's still relevant, he's trying to put on a play, an adaptation of Raymond Carver's um, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. And so the story takes place in the maybe a week or so leading up to the first night and then going through that first night on Broadway. And it's uh, it's pretty interesting <laughs> in the uh, in the way that it's shot and the way that it's scored and the way that um, you kind of play between reality and fantasy. Yeah, there are a lot of very specific reasons why the Academy may have, have liked this movie and it may have disconnected from a more general audience. But uh, the first thing I want to ask you, Doug, is... What did you think this movie was going to be before you watched it? I was expecting something of a superhero film, which, well, for the first the first time that we see Regan, he's like floating several feet above the uh, floor in a yoga meditation pose. You know, so I'm like, okay, so clearly this guy is a superhero. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally getting the superhero movie that I signed up for here. <laughs> Just waiting for that to come back. How long did it take before you realized? So he's got the levitation power, and then he he exhibits a number of times the ability to essentially like 
like if you watch the X-Men movies, he's got Jean Grey superpowers. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he can telekinetically pick stuff up, slide it across tables and stuff. And it wasn't until the scene where he's trashing his dressing room and, you know, telekinetically, you know, picking up various things and throwing them across the room. And then Zach Galifianakis opens up the door and comes in and you see that he's actually just picking stuff up with his arms and hands and and throwing it around i was like oh he's he's just a crazy person (laughs) (laughs) that's all this is did you find it hard to adjust your expectations at that point um not too bad he's also got birdman talking to him during many of those scenes he only ever seemed to do it when nobody else was around. So I was just kind of like, are we sure that Birdman is really talking to him or not? <laughs> are we sure he has these superpowers? And I was a little bit questioning it. But by the time that they revealed that it was, you know, it was all in his head. I, w- I was engaged enough by the by uh, the performance that I didn't mind that much. And the lead performance given by Michael Keaton, who... I mean, it's been around. I wonder if there was a little bit of a, a, I don't know, a touch of truth or, a you know, just a hint. It's not the same thing. But I mean, Michael Keaton, I would say the average, um, average American movie watcher knows him from the original Batman movies. Right. Yep. Um, and, you know, he was extremely well known for that. And obviously he did a, a number of other movies after that. But then he's kind of fallen off the grid. I mean, you haven't seen him in a while. Right. Yeah. Uh, prior point, to this yeah. film. But uh, yeah, in the movie... The last time he shot a Birdman film was in 1992, which is the last time he shot a Batman movie. I was wondering. I didn't look it up. I was wondering if that was the yeah, last time. Yeah, I looked time. that up afterwards, <laughs> yeah. or it was in the trivia. So I, I heard. I, I was wondering I, that too. When he specifically said 1992, and I'm like, yeah, that seems about right for the last Batman movie. Yeah. So I think the thing that's noticeable and unique about this movie right off the bat is the way that the shots are composed. Mm-hmm. There, it it's designed to look like it's one continuous shot. Which it can't be. I mean, well. What? It can't? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm not saying it can't be. It would just be almost impossible to do. You know, we'll have to look it up for the blog post, but there is a Russian movie that's like two hours long and is literally a single take. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Was it like, have you seen it at all? Does it look like a stage uh, play? I have not. Like, because I understand like putting up a camera, like, all right, do no, no, your the play. camera moves around. Oh, I'll wow. look it up for you. Yeah, we'll have to check that out. So I guess it's been done. This movie's not all that unique, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously you're going in real time, whereas in in Birdman, there there's a lot of time compression in places. Oh, that's true. You said it was like a week or something that it takes place over, and the version of the movie I watched, at least, was only like two hours long. <laughs> the version you watched, yes. <laughs> There's an extended director's cut. <laughs> they show people sleeping. and <laughs> You assume the Birdman sleeps. Oh, that's true. They say he doesn't sleep, right? He hasn't been sleeping well, so maybe you have to sit up with him. Those are killing <laughs> While he's uh, browsing the internet or something. <laughs> so, so the appearance of a one-shot <laughs> without actually being mm-hmm. a one-shot. You definitely have more of the kind of like the handheld camera motion. So it has a sense of forward momentum through the entire thing there's only a few shots where there's a break or we can actually feel some sort of relaxation like those shots where they're you know showing the passage of time through the lighting like outside the theater or things like that but um yeah it's you kind of get a sense of impending 
disaster. That's what I felt anyway the whole time it was happening, that something bad was going to happen. Yeah, I definitely mm-hmm. did. Doug, Douglas I mean, disagrees with me a little I bit. I mean, on some level, you get that just because, you know, you need conflict to have a movie. Uh, <laughs> well, that's true. But, yeah. But I was I was just kind of pulling for him to, you know, to, to pull it off. Yeah. Uh, you know, the whole time I was, I was, I was optimistic, you know, less focusing on the doom and more, more just on the, oh man, how's Birdman going to get his way out of this particular (laughs) stitch? (laughs) (laughs) So before we started taping, um, Doug was explaining what the trailer for this movie looked like because I never, I never saw the trailer and that basically any of the action sequences that kind of show up in it were shown in the trailer. And so it does definitely give you this misrepresentation that it is going to be like a superhero or action type movie. So especially without having seen, seen that, um, I immediately, like, I, there was no part of me that, that was questioning whether or not, like, Birdman was actually talking to him or whatever. I'm like, okay, so this guy clearly is suffering from some kind of mental illness. I was immediately prepared for something awful to happen. <laughs> and so uh, right away, the first time that, that Edward Norton's character gets in his face about his crappy plastic gun, and he's like, you know, I'm not scared of you at all. Like, this isn't real. Like, you need something, like, real. I'm like, oh, crap. Like, immediately. <laughs> I'm like, damn it. Yes, he's going to shoot himself on stage. Really? <laughs> like, <laughs> and it was that early that I'm like, all right, I'm prepping for it now. Like... <laughs> Sometimes, somehow, the first time I watched this movie, I didn't like it. Didn't click with me, and I was actually kind of surprised at the ending. <laughs> that's just not me not picking up on, uh, I think, very obvious cues. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't know. It was but just yeah. one of those ones that I think because I was already feeling like this, the character was unstable. Yeah, that I was mm-hmm. looking for something like that. I picked up on that a little bit. You know, the 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 Chekhov's handgun, but uh, I was kind of wondering: is he going to shoot himself with it? Is he going to shoot Edward Norton? Yeah, that would have been good too. Like, like are they going to break character on stage and freak shoot the heck him right out? In, is he going to shoot him right in the crotch? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, and he does aim the gun at other people and he aims the gun at the audience mm-hmm. too and pretends to shoot them. So, yeah, I guess there is some suspense about specifically what he's going to do with that. So, yeah, I think that the the way that it's shot is definitely definitely yeah, a and unique if you're, piece. If you're looking for the cuts, you can tell whether they would be they're usually in transitions between different locations where an actor suddenly goes off camera mm-hmm. and then you see the background but even so it's kind of you still have to get the lighting and the everything exactly. I mean, it has to be held enough yeah, yeah that you can transition back and it's seamless yeah. i i just I, I like i agree with you i think that it did give it a lot of forward momentum and it did also allow you to travel with a given character the last time they had interaction with another another character but then you get to walk away with them and kind of see like when they drop whatever you know if they're trying to look i don't know busy and important in front of somebody if they're trying to look vulnerable if they're trying to you know everybody's kind of you know playing off of each other and so then when they walk away you can kind of see some of that fall away and you can see some of that and i i think that that's nice with the camera kind of following different characters and pulling away and coming back i feel like it gives just a little bit more depth than in other the way that other films are shot yeah yeah i agree and so most of it's set backstage mm-hmm. in a theater that's what i thought was hilarious was all of these things going on with the main characters but there's also crew that's yeah. there that'll pop up in the background and not really have any part in the drama that's going on and michael keaton doesn't know anyone's name <laughs> he always is like hey they're steven kind of and they're like no they always give weird looks like what's wrong with you people 
I especially liked the the big confrontation between him and Edward Norton when they're actually like beating the crap out of each other and there's like two miscellaneous crew guys who are standing there like just watching. No one breaking it up. No one's <laughs> slowing it down the action at all. It's not like, oh, hey, you know, it's just like, hmm, yeah. all right. And then they just like walk away. This is what <laughs> happens in theater. It's not our job. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So you kind of commented on it to some extent, Doug, but I mean, now knowing that the like the the Birdman um like voiceover discussions you know that they're having whatever knowing that that's you know not not really taking place knowing that's kind of like in his head for the most part we're just we're just playing witness to his internal dialogue exactly Birdman definitely is his own character in the film I don't know how did that strike you in retrospect well I mean I basically took the the Birdman voice as you know here's the part of Michael Keaton that's uh, from back when he was on top so so it's just all of those feelings and like like image obsessed or or or, fame obsessed yeah fame fame obsessed yeah did you feel it was more like an eternal dialogue like you're saying or that it was some sort of psychotic break do you Uh, think it's like representation of what people would normally feel i guess i never really got a sense of of it as a psychotic break um if anything i would describe it as toxic celebrity you know just like just that part of him telling him, yeah, you were, you know, you used to pull in the huge crowds at the movie theaters. You're way better than all these other people around you. You know, look at these superpowers you have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> look what you can do. They don't, like, they don't know. I don't know. I thought it was interesting. I wouldn't go so far as to say psychotic break, but I definitely thought it was interesting that he's repeatedly telling him to shut up and he's repeatedly yeah. trying to get away from him or walk away from him. He, you know, he breaks the poster, the, right. the framed poster and, you know, he's just trying to to separate himself from that at times. Like most of the time, I feel like he's battling it until he kind of gives in in the biggest, you know, kind of the biggest scene where he flies Mm. over and there is all the crazy action, like allowing himself to just truly fall back into that. Can we talk about the the Birdman 3 poster? I just want to say that uh, just from a graphic design standpoint, that feels perfect. Like like it just feels like the exact kind of movie poster you would have seen for a movie in 1992. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it does i agree with you on that it was a a gift from the crew yeah yeah (laughs) don't mess with them they're union (laughs) because that that's how people treat him throughout the entire thing is anyone who's not an actor or part of the industry just recognizes him as birdman and wants his autograph and even the crew there are these regular people who are like of course he wants a poster of himself yeah. In his dressing room. I mean, it's kind of a weird off-putting thing. Like, why would you want that as a gift? Especially if you haven't done anything successful for 20 years in the wake of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yep, there's the scenes where he's talking to himself as Birdman. There's the scene where he's floating in the air. The scene where he's flying around the city. So, I guess, how are we supposed to interpret those scenes? Not well, literally happening. Well, like, the, the scene where he's flying at the very end of that, you know, he he touches down onto the ground and enters the theater. And then the cab driver comes out, you know, yelling for the fare. <laughs> so he clearly took a cab over. Right. Yeah, I really liked that scene actually a lot. I don't know. Like you said, I think it's just these these moments of, of like indulgence. Oh, yeah, where he's just kind of giving in to like what he used to be. Maybe. Just kind of losing control and giving in to that impulse to be back where he was. Um, well, and and I mean, f- before we started taping, we were talking about kind of this this struggle back and forth between art and entertainment. And I think it's a lot of the time he's really fighting for this play 
this play is really important. He sacrificed a lot in terms of money and the, you know, cost on his relationships and, you know, all of these things, whatever, for this play, which is art. And so maybe these falling back indulgences are kind of falling back into entertainment. So do you think that the movie goes one way or the other trying to say whether like, oh, the play is more important or the stuff he did before was more important or... I'm physically shrugging. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I never really got a feel of of it taking a stand on which one was more important. Mm-mm, I agree. Um, it never really felt like a comparison between the two. The, there's statements made from people who are clearly theater people. I mean, there's the obviously the, the big interaction between uh, himself and the critic. But after the opening tomorrow, I'm going to turn in the worst review anybody has ever read. And I'm going to close your play. Would you like to know why? Because I hate you and everyone you represent. Entitled, selfish, spoiled children. Blissfully untrained, unversed, and unprepared to even attempt real art. Handing each other awards for cartoons and pornography. Measuring your worth in weekends. Well, this is the theater. And you don't get to come in here and pretend you can write, direct, and act in your own propaganda piece without coming through me first. So break a leg. That's what's real. That's what's real art. And what you're doing is a joke. Um, And so I think that that's... I think there's definitely people who really feel that way on both sides. You know, the Hollywood feels like this is what's real. And there's lots of people who do art forms that are like, nah, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever. So I think that is an accurate representation. This obviously seems a little bit extreme versions mm-hmm. of that, but I, I don't doubt for a second that they exist. It's almost like he wants to do this to kind of atone for the success that he's had before, right? He's putting everything he has into this, like literally, like he's, he's like refinancing his yeah. house that he was supposed to give to his daughter to yeah. do this. Yeah. And then to have the critic come up and I'm not even going to give you a chance to do this. Well, I think that's where the, the napkin kind of comes in, where the napkin's kind of important. Because, you know, we, we saw earlier uh, what the napkin says on it, you know, thanks for an honest performance. And so it's clearly important to him because he's been carrying it around with him for, you know, ever since he was in high school in his wallet. Um, and you know, he, he's, he goes up to the movie critic and he's, you know, trying to show it to her. And she's just like, Nope. You know, at the end of that, he leaves the napkin behind on the bar. Like, I think he, you know, get finishes her, the drink that he bought for her goes out and, you know, gets drunk. It was kind of a turning point for him. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. Yeah. Cause it's also after that, that when, after he wakes up from, being drunk that that's the first time you see birdman materialize like until then it was just a voiceover oh and then when he wakes up birdman's now following him yeah that's the very first time and it's also the first time he really leans into it and that's when he flies and that's when you have all the things where it's like well screw it i tried you know like i've been trying and trying to do this and it doesn't matter it's all it's all gonna blow up so why why beat against it so the whole plot is set off by the fact that the original actor that's supposed to play the secondary role in the play is hit by a lighting fixture that falls on his head and then they bring on edward norton who plays a character named mike who is a theater veteran who is everyone's favorite everyone says he's been a good performer in everything they've ever seen yeah 
It's I, I, Edward Norton's character was kind of fun. The character he plays in this movie has a lot of depth, but like who he's supposed to be is very shallow and is very mm-hmm. comfortable being like he doesn't really care what people if people like him. He doesn't really care um, if he looks ridiculous. Witnessing the conversations between him and um, Michael Keaton's daughter, it's you know Emma Stone, whatever their conversations. I really I feel like that's when you kind of learn the most about him. Yeah, so they they have their two big conversations up on the rooftop. So you've kind of gotten away from this almost underground feeling backstage mentality, and they're out in the open air, and they do do some truth or dare, mm-hmm. which is <laughs> actually awesome. get to know each other. Yeah. No, because I, I I liked him because he first comes on and, and and it's it's I like kind of how they reveal his character to the to us the audience because he when he first comes on you're like oh wow this guy's like a ringer like he's really good and he's he knows the script and he's really expressive and has good ideas and is like gonna you know pull the best performance out of this right and so that's what you think at first and God. then you just watch him like just explode and totally demolish the very first um, um, preview. Right. But in that first scene, I realized what he does immediately is he takes over the role as director for that scene. Not only does he know all the lines when he comes in, he starts telling Michael Keaton how he's supposed to be doing his lines Mm -hmm. or what lines he's supposed to leave in and take out. So immediately, Michael Keaton feels threatened by him. He's like, oh, no, I'm out of my depth. This guy is way better at this than I am. No, it's it's pretty impressive. I mean, just like the highlights of things that he does that are just really over the top and kind of crazy. I mean, the actress who is kind of his girlfriend in real life. I don't know like how monogamous they were or anything like that, but mm-hmm. they were together. Uh, yeah, actually tries to, to sleep with her on stage. Um, like it gets relatively violent where you're like, is he really going to rape her on stage? And right. then it got, gets interrupted. So no, but the intention was there. Yeah. I have an aside about the the onstage almost sex scene. Yeah. I I think when we're, like, shortly after the guy is introduced, like, Leslie gets asked, uh, you know, how'd you find this guy? And I I think I heard her say, we share a vagina. Yes, she did. And... Or shared a vagina. And I just, you know, assumed from like the way I heard it was shared. And I just assumed, oh, their brother and sister, you know, came out <laughs> oh, of the same mom. Got it. So when we got to the onstage scene there, I was just like, wait, what? This is pretty <laughs> sorted. Okay. So when she and says, then, we- I, then I, then I kind of picked it up <laughs> yeah. that, oh, boyfriend, girlfriend. When she says we share a vagina, I was thinking they were sleeping together, but that's really funny because that's like you could easily interpret that either way uh yeah i really i i i like that that's how you heard it because it's totally possible that that that's what they meant yeah it's another turning point in the movie for you i think we've discussed a couple of them so far this movie is just full of so many twists and turns yeah (laughs) intentional or not they say that he's you know he's been impotent for months yeah for months do you want to fool around with me Really? Why not? That's the second question. It's the second part. I'd be afraid I couldn't get it up. That didn't seem to be a problem for you on stage. That's because nothing is a problem for me on stage. That's where he's. That's where he's good. That's where he's in his element, and everywhere else is is what's the problem. Although we don't see too much of it, just get to kind of take his word for it. So Emma Stone plays Sam, who's 
um, Michael Keaton's daughter in this, and and she ends up um, in a sort of affair with Edward Norton's character. Yeah. Do you think that that's going to be a good relationship? Do you think it's going to be a relationship? Do you think it's a good thing? Do you think no. it's a bad thing? I did not see the basis of a relationship there. No. Do you see the basis of anything? Was that a bad thing that they were kissing and making out, or was that positive? Well, I think they slept together. I don't yeah, think they were just okay. hanging around. Yeah. But I think that I think it was nice for each of I don't think it's a basis of a relationship. I agree with you, Doug, but I also think it was maybe something that for each of them, I don't know, they got to be honest with a person yeah. briefly. Okay. And so maybe this was just it was it was something like intimacy. Because he's cheating on Naomi Watts, so the question is how does that they compare had broken to the up by that point? They had broken. Well, yeah, yeah, because you're right. He, they he, did. They yeah. did. They she did. she called it after the almost rape on stage. <laughs> I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> she was like, "I'm out," you know, and decided to rebound by making out with Michael Keaton's girlfriend. <laughs> sure. Oh, well, again, then, what do you think about that? What do you think about that makeout scene? Was that just something that happened at the time, or do you think there's some? No. sort of basis for anything there i almost felt like and maybe because it never was addressed again i almost felt yeah. like they just threw in the movie so they could be like "Ooh, this movie has chicks making out in it <laughs> well yeah i mean it's not like at that point you see those two characters making out enjoying it and then they're really not addressed very much as characters for the rest of the movie nope, there you've, you've served your purpose we right so i feel like out. it's the yeah kind of all right these characters are going to be okay because I'm uh, quite uh, honestly, I'm surprised it wasn't in the trailer. Because if you're going to show all the good <laughs> stuff up front, man, why was it not in there? <laughs> so, so was that just one for the shippers then? Yeah. <laughs> that's what I felt like, kind of. <laughs> I think that's the first time anyone said shippers on our show, Charlie. <laughs> oh, did we want to talk about Michael Keaton's girlfriend, Laura? I I I was confused, I think, a little bit by the nature of their relationship because, like, when she tells him that she's pregnant and he's clearly really thrown. I mean, we already know he has an adult daughter. I don't know, 20-ish, something around there. I thought it was, like, late teenager. Yeah, something like that. And then, you know, this, this woman who's significantly younger than him, you know, who's also an actress in his play, you know, whatever, um says that she's pregnant like she seems kind of excited and he seems kind of shaken up and then i don't know like the next time you really see her she's telling him kind of like teary-eyed that she's not there's a lot of things that happen if you listen to the play as they're doing the lines are things that happen in the rest of the movie too and that is some that is a line that she has did you think she was actually pregnant see i watched the movie as a character study of uh of reagan so for the people who weren't him, when they faded just into the background, it's like, well, you're just not important anymore. <laughs> yes. That's, that, that's, that's yeah. a very fair point. Yeah. And that's what it feels like. Very much so. Yeah. So when she, she kind of takes herself out of the movie, kind of at that point when she announces that she's not pregnant anymore, I, I believe her. Absolutely, I did. I think that something happened. We don't know specifically what it is and that she she isn't pregnant. I don't think there's any reason to disbelieve her. But Michael Keaton doesn't give any indication that he's excited about it. No. He, I think, makes an offensive joke to her (laughs) about whether it's his or not. Yep. Yep. And that's about the best we can do. He doesn't react specifically negatively, but sometimes no reaction is the worst thing you can do. So. Well, and I I thought it was very pointed that when, um, you know, after... 
Ed Norton attempts to, you know, kind of force her, uh, his girlfriend to have sex on stage, and she's obviously very upset after the scene. And so the the two actresses are in a dressing room together talking about it. Now this is your fault, okay? Okay, look, you're beautiful, and you're talented, and I'm lucky to have you. Okay? Okay. Okay. Kind of sweet. Yeah. What's wrong? Nothing. Two years and he's never said anything like that to me. Hey. You're beautiful. And you're talented. And I'm lucky to have you. Okay? We're gross. We are. It basically just really underscores how unimportant she really is to him. Yeah. Agreed. There's a lot of relationships in this movie that are doomed or aren't aren't right. Basically, whoever one is with when they start out the movie. I have a hard time with movies like this because I feel like afterwards, like it sits with me for a while afterwards. Like I have a hard time kind of shaking off a, a feeling that I get from movies like this where it seems like everybody is perked up by attention. That's all they're really they're really searching for like you know i'm saying like his his relationship with this actress you know michael keaton's character whatever with this actress it's 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 attention and then you know she uh when she says you know that he's never paid attention to her she goes to try to kiss the other the other actress and it's an exchange of attention that they perk up to and (laughs) edward norton and sam you know you know the daughter whatever emma stone you know their interaction it was you know some you know some intimacy kind of not necessarily real deep intimacy, but it was a tension. And it's this, basically, it's it's just a brief, shallow uh, antidote for loneliness. And so I feel like that's what's most pervasive, like, feeling. And so when I get done with this, I'm like, okay, that's enough of that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have a hard time with that kind of sitting with me, following me around. The only relationship I could point out in the movie that doesn't feel like that is actually between him and his ex-wife. Completely agree. Yeah. yeah. Where... There's not the same kind of love as there used to be, but at least there's an understanding and she's supportive of him. And she's the one waiting in the room at the hospital when he wakes up at the end of the movie. Nobody else is there. Doesn't she have a line about uh, you always confused love with admiration or yeah. something? Yeah. 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 No, I, yeah. I, I actually wrote that one down because oh. I thought it really was appropriate, like kind of summarizing line for how he's behaving. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of different instances of that where his girlfriend with he wants the admiration of the theater community. He wants people to take him seriously. But alternately, he also thinks about becoming Birdman again so that he can have the admiration of the world at large. And did he, though? He throws like he has some throwaway line about how he you know turned down Birdman four, and then like somebody in the background, I think, you know, perks up. Are you doing Birdman four? Yeah, they get like <laughs> yeah. super stoked about it. Yeah, but it's just an aside for him. Right. So, oh, so you don't feel like he's all really down deep like... where he wants to do that, even with the Birdman voiceovers. Yeah. Okay. Like, like I feel like with the Birdman voiceover, you know, again, it's a, it's that part of him that craves the the celebrity and the trappings of celebrity. That that's what he's after. Um, 
but he's going to do it through this play was the feeling I got. You know, that's what, like, to an extent, that's why he's, you know, producer, director, writer, and star. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, I thought that was really interesting how, yeah, that's just kind of him being wanting all of this acclaim. It's like, I'm going to do everything myself and not entrust it to anyone else. And I'm so good that I can, I can write this and direct this and act in it at the same time, which a lot of people do. But I mean, it probably wasn't the best choice for that play. You see how much stress he's under and the choices that he's making that maybe aren't the best choices for the, the show. Yeah. Like you got Zach Galifianakis there, his character trying to hold everything together and make it work. And he just kind of fades into the background at some point. Yeah. He's, he does a good job in this. I he really <laughs> does. It was a very different performance from him than I was yeah, used to. Pretty restrained, but definitely, definitely Zach in there. <laughs> <laughs> I um, saw a lot of his characteristics, but I, I I thought I did find it interesting that I his character was really on Michael Keaton's you know side that he was um, really trying to make this happen and was really invested and really working hard to try to make this a, a success. Um, I did find it kind of interesting at the end when he does wake up in the hospital. I don't know. It's like it's like he got a little taste of the of the fame and is is like tainted almost immediately by it, because instead of being concerned about the fact that, oh, I don't know, you tried to commit suicide on the stage and just didn't happen to be successful. Let's not worry about that. Right. (laughs) Like, check it out. You're on the front page of the art section and like (laughs) blah, blah. And he's like immediately turned and immediately tainted. And I loved um, that his ex-wife that I love that uh, that she like slaps him in the face. It was so funny because he's like, I can see the future. She's like, oh, you can. Oh, just like cracks in the face. Did you see that coming? Like, I was like, I like her. <laughs> but yeah, there's a scene earlier, too, where he tells Michael Keaton that the, the we're, we're sold out and Martin, <laughs> Martin Scorsese. Yeah, he says Scorsese and it hurt me. <laughs> I, I feel like that was... Zach Alphanakis improving and like trying to make people crack up and like that's just the take they got because it's so hard to do these long takes. They're like, we're gonna leave that in because I don't know anybody who is in theater or Hollywood or knows anything about this that would mispronounce his name. Scorsese. You're right. You know, it does feel like something that he probably just did (laughs) to sound particularly douchey. (laughs) But then he. He lies about those things and then is out in the hallway kind of throwing a fit or hits the wall or whatever and says, like, I'm just trying to hold this whole thing together. He's not necessarily doing it to help Michael Keaton. He's doing it because keep the production afloat. It's his, it's his job. Yeah. I mean, but... he's, he's doing what he's supposed to do. I don't know. I just felt like it was definitely he was turned at the oh, end. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah he kind of felt like he definitely got, got a decent it. sleaze factor at the end. <laughs> the title of the article in the art section was the subtitle of the movie. Yes. <laughs> Which was pretty clever. I liked that. So, subtitle. A, what do you think it means? And B, do you think it's pretentious to have the subtitle? Or is that the point? (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Doug. You start on that one. (laughs) Let me just read the whole thing. So, it's Birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance. (laughs) I don't even... (laughs) Personally, I don't even quite understand what that refers to. Like, like I understand what it refers to in return in terms of the review of the play, right? Like that part seems pretty clear. But yeah, I agree. It's it like trying to relate that to the movie itself is a bit trickier. 
Yeah, what is he ignorant about? Unexpected virtue of ignorance. Because that's the thing is like, well, I guess when I saw it on the front page of the paper at the end, I'm like, are they trying to say he didn't know that he had live ammo on stage? Because I'm pretty sure he did. Oh, well, but that's how they're going to play it. That's what he said when the insurance people come and talk to you about it. You're going to say that it was an accident. (laughs) You're right. They do say that. But yeah, it's yeah. going to be a whole new type of theater. It's super real. But how real. can it be Yeah, <laughs> that type of theater unless it was on purpose? So yeah. I don't yeah. know. It's unclear how the, what the future is going to hold. <laughs> really, <laughs> it all lies in the prop master's hands now. Sometimes <laughs> the gun might be real. Sometimes it might be a real knife. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they make a point of showing him removing the clip, checking to see that, yeah, there are bullets there, and mm-hmm. then putting it back in the gun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then loading the chamber. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's really clear. He's being very intentional. Yeah, yeah. About this. But yeah. does the reviewer know that? So it's, exactly. I guess the intention, the reviewer thought that he didn't know, so, and that's why well, he's... This is this is the other thing I did want to bring up. So when he's, it's the very last time he's going to do the scene, and he's out on stage, and this time he does walk more out onto the stage, like more out into the lights, and he waves the gun at the audience too, like you'd mentioned, Charlie, and then he he shoots himself, and you see everybody look really shocked. It's There's like a silence that follows him shooting himself in the head and falling onto the stage, and then everybody stands and applauds, and you see somebody sneak out right away. Like somebody gets out of their seat and starts going up the aisle, and it's the critic that he talks yeah. to in the bar. Yep. Yeah. And so you see her walk away like immediately. And so the, my question is, the review that's on the front page of this paper... Is it hers? I think so. I think yeah. she is hurrying out to write the review as quickly as possible so I can get out really? the next day. Yeah, I think she yeah. was the one who was impressed by it. It's like, I can't believe... He was willing to shoot himself in the head? Yeah, or this is a new type of art that I need to write about. Or Either that or is a completely different... Uh, the other idea, I guess, is a completely different newspaper. Or no. she's the one no, that no. people was, care about. It was the Times, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was. Like, no. like, it was... I mean, I guess I said earlier, you know, it seemed pretty self-evident to me, but to me at least, you know, the unexpected virtue of ignorance from her as the critic standpoint is, hey, like this was amazing in a way that I was totally not expecting from this guy who has just no, no right, no reason to be here. And yet here he's created this art. So it was her ignorance of what was going to happen? No, no, no. Uh, she she was she was saying that, you know, he's ignorant of what the theater is really about. Oh. And it was that ignorance that's what allowed him to create the art. Oh, weird. Yeah. I kind of like, like that's that. How I, I, like, I like that take on it. And then my last one other question is, do you think she's actually impressed by it? Or do you think she's like, crap, I have to write a good review because he just shot himself in the head on stage. <laughs> and it turns out it's not the, there's never a good time. There's never a good time. <laughs> <laughs> to talk trash about the guy who actually shot himself in the head on stage. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, not, she could have not, she could have been less glowing. I, she couldn't, she wouldn't have said, this is a whole new thing okay, that everyone needs to. I was just, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't yeah. actually saying I, I didn't think she, but I was just, I was There's curious. I yeah. think there is something like, like, I don't disagree. I think she felt like she couldn't have given it a negative review at that point. <laughs> You're Even kinda, though she promised you're to, kind of painted into a corner at that point. <laughs> I I disagree. Like I mean, you saw that she was you know something of a wicked person. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I don't think that she would have any qualms about you know, even if he you know successfully killed himself on stage. I don't think she would have had any qualms about you know saying, "Wow, this is how crass this guy is." True. You know clear example of why he had no business being on the theater on broadway 
Well, yeah, I agree with you with that. Uh, so we haven't talked about the soundtrack of this movie yeah. yet either. It's mostly, not entirely, but mostly percussion. Lots of lots of drums. There's a drum line at one point. There's a drum line at two points. Yes, at two points. There's like a lot of jazz drumming mm-hmm. that goes on too. And I know your love of jazz, Charlie. Oh yeah, <laughs> this has been well established <laughs> in previous podcasts. I love jazz. I love jazz drumming. <laughs> if we can do Whiplash one day, I would just be just oh my gosh, heaven. he's gonna be I'm, so happy. I'm not gonna lie, it did take me out of the movie a little bit because I was just like, man, Charlie's got to be loving this part. <laughs> <laughs> I I I thought it was interesting that it used that in combination with the one shot um feel like it's like you said that forward momentum and I think that's maybe what the drum is like I don't know kind of supposed yeah. to be adding to that yes. forward momentum feel and I did find it really interesting that in certain interactions between characters where it's just kind of becoming heated and they maybe want you to not focus so much on what the characters are saying to one another as as you are supposed to be focusing kind of on the general mood and the body language of the interaction that they'll pick it up the volume of it up and have it come over the top of what they're actually saying, making it more difficult for you to be able to pay attention to what they're saying. I noticed it completely goes away uh, when he wakes up in the hospital. Yep. So that's like almost completely silent. I mean, I guess you get the shot coming down from the ceiling of the air conditioning system, mm-hmm. blowing air. So you can hear a little bit of that, but that's when you all the hear... drums finally cut out. You can hear the birds tweeting outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the actual drummers being part of the scenes that you're watching and sometimes in the sort of magical realism where like there's not going to be a drummer sitting off in the corner backstage (laughs) doing this piece but other places like on the street i guess there could be somebody drumming on the street well when they have him you know trucking it through the times square in his underwear there's a drum line right yeah which could happen so i thought it was kind of fun how they just Mm -hmm. snuck that in there where they could but you're also talking about those long one shots and that also means that they had to have scored this ahead of time and knew what they were going to play so that they could have the drummers drumming that. So, and then they had to sync it up, too. So I, I liked the um, after he does shoot himself and, you know, you have the applause or whatever. And then and then it kind of becomes this weird like you're not quite sure if he's died or yet or not. But basically yeah. you have you're still in the theater, you're still on the stage, and then there's like this weird hodgepodge of characters that all look like you could easily see them in Times Square, mm-hmm. <laughs> like mixed in on stage with a drum line. <laughs> um, which I thought was just I don't know. I mean, I guess it's kind of the the, the pink elephant scene for yeah. this movie. And all the super they're superhero characters. Yeah, too. and it's there's like, like Spider Man. But, like, but it's like a cheap Spider Man. <laughs> yeah. like, like, that's like what I costume. love. It's like it's clearly <laughs> yep. like like you could go to like any like Halloween costume store and pick this up. <laughs> I did notice too. So like you said, Charlie, it's mostly this jazz drumming, but there's specific scenes where instead we pick up into kind of more like sweeping classical music. And so I noticed that um, after the really aggressive interaction between himself and his daughter, um, like you know, he finds a joint and they have this huge interaction where she basically tells him that he is not relevant, that he isn't important. Um, and he should like get used to that idea and like storms off, like classical music picks up. And when he, and he, you know, smokes some of the joint or whatever, and it's like the classical music following that scene out. Yeah. No, I don't, def- I don't yeah. know exactly what the purpose is except contrast. Yeah. I mean, there were scenes where the drumming, I don't think would have been appropriate. It's sort of a, sort of the pressure building inside of his, 
head is kind of how I felt that working. So the scenes where there's a little bit of a release or something else going on, or maybe between other characters, like maybe, I, am I wrong? I think there were scenes maybe between Ed Norton and Emma Stone that might have had some of that yep. going on as well. well. Yeah, I, I'm glancing at my notes real quick. I'm totally cheating. Um, <laughs> but glancing at my notes, because there's... You don't want to speculate like I do? Well, no, because... <laughs> that's much better. Well, because I know after, I after, he and his, after he and Sam have that, like there's a big emotional kind of release after that. And then I see here, after he destroys his dressing room, um after he destroys his dressing room um while arguing with birdman then there's some there's some classical music when ed norton and emma stone um i think when she basically dares him (laughs) to sleep with her then it picks up classical music again i was trying to decide too if it was really super creepy that they're like making out and potentially getting it on while I think it's supposed to be her father running lines on stage, you know, just over the balcony. I'm like, nope, nope, that's gross. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I like the the few times when uh, he actually gives cues or direction to the score. I loved that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I really, really liked when you see him when he's on the roof and he's clearly thinking about jumping and he's like he says something like score or something like that you, you know to keep the music and then you have it like start to swell and immediately stop the second that guy like grabs his arm the guy's like uh, hey buddy are you okay like you don't want to jump or whatever i did really like that it was like done like <laughs> it was like a little bit of reality just like breaking up his his fantasy there where he's like no dude leave me alone i'm in the middle of something um so I also thought it was interesting. A fact here read was because of the way the shots were done and because of the score, they had to do so many long takes and had to make sure they were right when they did them on set. That editing of the film after the fact took two weeks. That's it. <laughs> really? That it was so close to being completed at that point anyway because of the way they had to do it. Well, yeah, you don't have to. Yeah, I suppose. This shot and then cut to this other like opposing shot of the other character or you know, this master shot, like you don't have to do that because it's one take. It's like, which was the best take? It was this one. Okay, (laughs) let's go to the next one. I suppose. There's like no place to cut. So I don't know. I think that's kind of crazy. This was also a movie that won best picture, but didn't win best editing. And that may be the reason why. It's just, there wasn't a lot of editing to do. Yeah, I suppose. (laughs) I mean, unless, I don't know. It depends how much. Certainly not after the fact editing. No, no, not at all. Um, (laughs) And they also kept track of who screwed up the most shots. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. Who did? Emma Stone screwed up the most shots. Did she? And the least really? number was Zach Galifianakis. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's impressive. Perhaps because he was the best at improv and naturally fixing things he was about to screw up. Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't think we can get through this without talking about the ending of oh, the film. Yeah. Uh, so Michael Keaton's... In the hospital, he's got the gauze on his face. It kind of looks like a Birdman mask. Yeah. He goes to the bathroom. He takes it off. He sees Birdman. <laughs> on the can. <laughs> on the toilet. Which I was trying to decide what the significance of that was specifically. But Well, so when he leaves the bathroom, he does say under his breath, See you goodbye. Later. Yes. Is that meant to mean that he's done with that? That's the way I took it because in the next scene he looks out the window and the birds are like flying away. But then oh, I wasn't yeah. sure because then he opens and gets on the ledge and then, you know, supposedly takes off. And I'm like, okay, I don't know anymore. Yeah. So the question, did he 
Did he or didn't he? What's going on, Doug? Tell us. Doug. So. (laughs) (laughs) Answer the question once and for all. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You're the last word. (laughs) Well, geez. I think it all hinges on uh, Emma Stone's performance and and what you think of her acting abilities. (laughs) Because if you think that her acting abilities are not up to snuff, then I guess you can think whatever the heck you want to think about this movie. (laughs) But if you think that she can act very well, then y- you know that she first looks down, then she looks up, and she doesn't have the kind of uh, reaction that one would have if you looked down and saw that, yeah, your dad is street pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, looking up, there's not going to be anything of note, but you can tell from her expression, there clearly is something up there that's of note and not down on the street (laughs) so i think we're forced to conclude that this really was a superhero movie after all (laughs) qed i don't know how much i have to add to that (laughs) because i i know other people i've talked to have said like oh it's ambiguous or something like that i agree with you doug i don't think it's ambiguous like if you believe that she did, she can do what she's supposed to do as an actress. I mean, I think her reaction kind of says everything. So there. I, I agree with you that clearly he's not on the he's not street pizza. <laughs> so she looks up. So my question is, is are, are you supposed to believe that she's seeing him flying? Are you supposed to believe that she looks up and she just sees no evidence of him anywhere? And so she's like, he must have. I think she sees him flying. Okay. I think she sees him as. So this was the thing that confused me a little bit. We see him flying earlier and we almost feel like that's him backsliding or something negative, right? Because it happens at such a negative point in the movie. But this time he goes out the window, I guess in my opinion, he's flying out there. Now it's a good thing. It's because it's under different circumstances. Well, I think if you, if you were to take, try to take a opposing viewpoint, um, one thing you could suggest is that we're not actually seeing in reality Emma Stone coming out and looking out the window. We're we're still in his head at oh, that point. Okay, we're we're seeing him thinking, "Oh, I you know I finally have you know my daughter's you know maybe not quite respect, but you know interest because she seemed very disinterested." Told him that in that big blow up that you know, "Hey, you don't matter. Get used to it." So. It's possible that we're, we are still just in his head, and that's just what he wants to see. Yeah, it's very possible that everything from when he when he wakes up in the hospital, because you have his ex-wife there defending him, you have him being on the front page of the paper, <laughs> you have his daughter come in, give him the flowers that in the very beginning he's asking her to bring. Right, yep. And they hold hands and she lays her head on his chest. They clearly have this deep, like, sweet exchange and yeah, he tells the bird man to, uh, you know, take a hike, take a hike. And then, you know, he leaps out the window. Like, <laughs> it's kind of like everything you've ever wanted. <laughs> all of a sudden, all you had to do is shoot yourself in the face. Seriously. <laughs> that's, that's the takeaway, kids. <laughs> you have to suffer for your art. <laughs> I can see why this movie was rated R. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I did earlier today was... Maybe I ought to read that short story oh. that the play in the movie is based off of. And I read it. And first of all, it was weird because there's two different versions of the story. There's the one that 
Raymond Carver originally wrote and then got massacred by his editor. Oh. And then there's another version, which his widow put out after he died. But in either case, it was really interesting the way they did the adaptation of the story for the play in the movie. I don't. It's, it's hard to even talk about this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly. Sure. They do it in a way like, it's just, it seems like some sort of in-joke. So you have that monologue that Michael Keaton does about um, the doing couple. the surgery in that mm-hmm. old couple. That was done in the story by Ed Norton's character. Oh. So Michael Keaton has clearly taken that story and redirected it to his own character so he can tell it instead of the other person. Interesting. <laughs> Seems like Edward Norton's character does complain about that. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. butchering Carver. You're taking all of the best lines and giving them to yourself. Oh, does he say he that? Does yeah. say that. He oh. does say that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that definitely, <laughs> like, that definitely <laughs> happens. But then the whole second act isn't it is in the story but like told through character so it's like it's just so bizarre hmm. like and then the character that michael keaton plays at the end with the wig is a different character than he's playing earlier oh is it yeah it's a character he's playing in a flashback that's why he's wearing a wig that has nothing to do with the wig he was wearing earlier <laughs> so he's taken that story and like played it out but also given himself the best role in that part of the story i like this is this is this is a good contribution charlie thank you yeah it's like he's taken everything and just directed it towards himself it's like well i'm gonna do this part and i'm gonna do this part and then i'm gonna do this whole fancy artsy thing at the end where we have reindeer running around or whatever i didn't know what that was yeah i i i really liked through the throughout this movie you see them you basically see two of the scenes maybe kind of almost like two and a half scenes because you see the big scene where they're in like that kitchen and then you see the ending scene obviously where he comes in with the gun and then you just see little kind of like snippets of of that like you're you're talking about that kind of bizarre dream sequency scene with the reindeer or whatever um but i like that you get to see it gosh at least three times and i really liked like you said that how relevant the lines are for the characters who are saying them yes um and i liked in particular how in the last monologue in particular where he's like you know what's wrong with me um each time he says it i think he's identifying with it but you can see it in a different way or maybe to a different extent each time that he performs it that he's really kind of experiencing this and not really separating himself from the character just really interesting i wonder how so the director was also the writer of the movie and it's like oh i have to take a short story and adapt it to a play and then put that play in the movie but the play has to be produced in a way that it says something about the characters who are in the movie <laughs> so it's like a movie within a movie yeah that's this how self-involved <laughs> yeah is this particular character <laughs> do we want to talk about the question of the play about love oh yes please let's do that <laughs> that's the only other thing is just you know yeah. this, this now for the artsy part of the show where we talk <laughs> about love i did not read the short story so i don't really know what it was meant to be about i can give a quick yeah like, why don't you do a thing? couple of seconds yeah you do it. so because people probably haven't read the story it's basically it only takes place in the kitchen okay <laughs> and it's just two couples talking to each other about this story about the old couple who can't see each other because they've been in this accident and them just over the course of the evening drinking and kind of becoming paralyzed almost at the fact where they realize that they don't necessarily have the same sort of love that the people in the story have so it's just kind of a depressing story at the end and then you make that into a two-act play (laughs) it's somehow (laughs) sure of course you can 
So I, I guess I mean it's it's an int- it's a good topic or an interesting topic at least to insert for these types of characters like where you know you you have the line that the ex wife says to him where he confuses love for admiration you have somebody who's clearly striving for the admiration of those around him whether it's from his family members from the greater audience from people in the theater versus people in Hollywood you know you kind of have this and you see that with a lot of the characters so I feel like it's an appropriate. Yeah. Subject matter for the play within the movie. So I, 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 are we supposed to be looking for a greater arc? Are we supposed to be looking for him to figure out what love is versus admiration? So. Yeah. It, he's obsessed with it, uh, with admiration and celebrity until the end. I mean, there's all the social media stuff that comes up. It's like, oh, how many views do you have on YouTube or how many followers do you have on Twitter? And he starts to buy into that just a little bit. But at the end of the movie, the thing that's important to him, and Doug already brought it up, is like his daughter actually starts to respect him a little bit. And his wife is the one who's in the hospital with him. And they've had a heart to heart before that, even talking about the time he tried to commit suicide. And I think it's just all of those things earlier where he's just so self-obsessed or obsessed with what other people think about him and trying to get love and respect that way and then just realizing that his family is where that needs to come from mm-hmm. i hope which so. kind of goes which kind of goes back to the short story too where you know you've got this this couple who's in love and like really sweet old couple but it's also a story that talking about how one of the characters used to have an abusive ex-boyfriend who was very violent her trying to argue like yeah that's still love like she still thinks that's love like it's just a different kind of love so it's just them having a conversation about how one defines that and what counts and what doesn't count. And I think the movie is saying, you know, all of this stuff about having the public like you isn't something that's important or maybe even having the, you know, being well regarded in the theater isn't important. But at the end, he's, you know, kind of redeemed because of the, those family connections. I liked the the last conversation he has with his ex-wife during the intermission. And he he talks to her about his suicide attempt but then he also says that he regrets taping their daughter's birth that he wishes he hadn't so that he could just be present and so i i thought that was kind of representative of the situation he's in now right where it was a um something that's for posterity but by participating that and by seeking that you're missing the real thing i don't know the forest for the trees kind of i think that's the overarching point of the film, it's kind of hard to get to. It's just kind of weird that by reading the story, it can actually give you insights into what's going on in the movie, which kind of brings us back to uh, <laughs> one thing I wanted to ask the guest, Doug, is uh, would you recommend this movie to anybody? Would you give it one star or would you give it ten stars? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would recommend it to people who are maybe not necessarily looking for a good superhero movie as a good what drama yes yeah yeah see i don't really watch many dramas so it's hard for me to to be able to articulate (laughs) what exactly falls under that uh, umbrella yeah i think it's fair to warn people about what they're getting into and that's been kind of the problem with its ratings its user ratings i I can easily see that i didn't i i felt like the single camera way in which it's shot is it's a gimmick but it doesn't ever feel like too precious or anything. Like I never really get too much pretentiousness from it. I get more, more of just, you know, here's a cool gimmick that we're going to use 
to shoot the movie, you know, because we think it'll help us a little bit, you know, in telling the story, but mostly it looks cool. Mm-hmm. I would go maybe eight. Ooh, an in-between rating. Yeah. So like no, somebody who actually it's, cares it's... about ratings. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's not incredible. I don't, um, I don't think it's best picture worthy. I think that would probably have to go to either Guardians of the Galaxy, Interstellar, or let's face it, John Wick. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm not agreeing. Just throwing that out there about John Wick, just for the record. I just saw John Wick 2 yesterday. <laughs> I haven't seen that yet. Oh, yeah. Well, I think you know what to expect. <laughs> More of the same? Largely, yes. <laughs> I think I need to go see it. Somebody, somebody, does somebody kill a new dog? What? I can't spoil that for you. It's anyway. a major plot point whether or not a dog gets killed in this movie. Anyway. <laughs> so, an eight. You're giving it an eight. I'm giving it an eight. All right. <laughs> All, right. All right. Fair enough. So, Doug, you've watched a movie we thought you should watch. What is something you think that the world should experience? Well, I, I've got two recommendations for you. All right. The first one is a superhero film of sorts, uh, kind of like the movie that, you know, if you were going in to see Birdman the, the same way that I was, something that might be a little bit more satisfying for you, and, and that movie is Unbreakable with Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. Um, very, that's, that's one of my, maybe not favorite movies, but one of the movies I enjoy and admire the most. It's definitely worth checking out. And the other one is a movie which came out this past summer where Michael Keaton once again plays a bird-themed super-powered guy, and that's Spider-Man Homecoming. <laughs> <laughs> Our executive producer, Adam Kubeski, gave me many years ago a uh, Spider-Man anthology as a uh, Christmas or birthday gift. And the very first v- villain I think that they introduce in the Spider-Man comics is the vulture. And I was like, that's a horrible, <laughs> that's a horrible villain. They're never going to put that in a movie. <laughs> and here we are. And I hear it's great. Like, have you not seen it? Yet? I've not seen it yet. Oh, well then that is my recommendation to you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I've heard he's great. Like, you, have, yeah. you have homework now, Charlie. <laughs> he's Michael Keaton plays a small business owner. Who's just trying to, you know, do the right thing for himself and for the people that work for him. It's pretty much what the movie's about. (laughs) (laughs) What's your recommendation, Charlie? So this episode, I was thinking, again, Michael Keaton performances. (laughs) And the one that surprised me was I hadn't seen him in years. And then there's a movie called The Other Guys, which has Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg (laughs) as a pair of cops, like a buddy cop comedy that just, I didn't think would work and it works really well. It is very funny. And Michael Keaton plays, I believe their chief of police who also works at like a home Depot or something on the weekends. Sure. And speaks in uh quotes from the band TLC. <laughs> <laughs> it's it. I don't think I'm describing it in a way that uh, it's hyping this, it too much, but this, this I would definitely recommend like... it. It was. Is that the movie where it was so funny? Is that the movie where it. one of the guys gets handed like a wooden gun? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm told that that one's a really good movie. Yes. So I might have to take that recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I'm going a little bit different with my recommendation. Uh, I had mentioned to these guys before we started taping that there were elements, or maybe just like the tone. Um. 
of the movie reminded me of Death of a Salesman. Um, I remember watching the the film version, the 1985 film version with Dustin Hoffman, kind of being on a quest for something personal, for respect, for love, for something like that. And uh, the over all just overarching just kind of depression of feeling like a failure um just really reminded me of that so that's if you haven't seen it it's very well done well doug thank you very much for coming on the show anytime so i think our homework is that we all have to go and write write a positive review of this oh on amazon (laughs) on amazon yeah sure sure thing (laughs) well wherever we ended up getting the movie from we should do that just to offset the uh, all the ones (laughs) i don't think any of us rated it a one no, no, I don't think I'd rate it a one. I think that's a little over the top. I mean, that's, that's a little harsh. Well, that wraps it up. Thanks so much for joining us. We had a great time. Hope you really enjoyed it. Tune in next time when we'll be introducing another friend to one of our favorite movies. See you then. I read some sort of stupid trivia that said like, oh, they used the model for his Batman suit to make the Birdman suit. And I'm like, but why would you do that if it wasn't even the same person? Yeah, I thought that was weird, too. Because you really hate that actor in the suit and you want him to be as uncomfortable as possible. (laughs) I hope your cod piece is riding up.